Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Equipped to Serve, a study in Paul's pastoral epistles. Here's Pastor Nick. Right. Well, would you please bow your heads again, and we're going to pray again as we open God's Word and get into our study. Heavenly Father, we give you now our attention. We give you our hearts and our minds. As we hear your Word, Lord, we pray that it would sink deep, not only into our minds to give us understanding, but that it would affect our hearts and transform our lives. So, Lord, we give ourselves to you during this time. We pray that you would have your way in our lives and do your work. Shape us into the people you want us to become. Speak to us words of grace and words of comfort, but Lord, also words of edification that send us out into the mission you've given us by your power. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The author, Shel Silverstein, he wrote a poem called The Prayer of a Selfish Child. Here's how it goes. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my toys to break so none of the other kids can play with them. Amen. (laughs) Now listen, in our text today, Paul the Apostle is going to show us a different way to pray, a way to pray for others that reflects a heart that has been changed and transformed by the grace of God. The title of today's message is Between God and Men. Between God and Men. And what we're going to see in our passage today is that having received God's grace, we are now called to join God in his mission to seek and save the lost. I'll tell you that, that sentence one more time. Every week I give you a sentence, then we use that sentence as our outline for studying our text. And so here's the sentence one more time. Having received God's grace, we are now called to join God in his mission to seek and save the lost. So let's take that. We're going to break it into three parts. It'll be our guide as we work through 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So first of all, having received God's grace, the second chapter of 1 Timothy begins with these words. First of all, then. First of all, then. Now what that phrase tells us is that we're about to be told something which is based upon or follows up, up, up on something which has been said previously. So what is it that has been said previously up until this point in this letter? Well, first of all, let's remember the context. First Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy. At this point in his life, Timothy's probably in his 30s. Paul the Apostle is probably in his 50s, maybe even his early 60s. So there's a generational gap between these two men. And yet Timothy, even though he's young, he's not a kid. He's an adult, and he's not just an adult. He's a man who has proven himself in ministry over years, perhaps even decades of service to the Lord. You see, when Timothy was in his late teens or perhaps his early 20s, Paul the Apostle visited the church that was his home church and invited Timothy to come along with him and be part of his missionary team that was traveling throughout the Roman Empire, going from city to city, preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus and establishing churches for the people who responded and put their faith in Jesus. And so for years, Timothy spent time with the apostle Paul. He traveled with him and he learned from him. Paul became or was for Timothy somewhat of a spiritual father, 
especially considering the fact that Timothy's own father was not a Christian. But now, at the point when this letter is written, several years have gone by, Paul has now asked Timothy to take on a great responsibility. He's now asked him to be the pastor and overseer of the church in the city and region of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire, either the third or fourth largest city in the empire. And it was a place where God had done a great work, a great work in regard to the gospel. Paul had started this church, Paul the Apostle started this church on his third missionary journey. You can read about it in Acts chapter 19. Paul had come to Ephesus on his third missionary journey, and through Paul's efforts over the course of three years, we read there in Acts chapter 19, that as a result of that work, all the residents of the region around Ephesus heard the word of the Lord. That's pretty amazing, right? And not only that, but it also says this, that the word of God increased greatly in that city and in that region. So what happened, though, is after three years, Paul left Ephesus, went on to other places to continue his work as an apostle and as a missionary, but he entrusted the work there in Ephesus, the leadership of that church, to local leaders. But what happened over time is that those local leaders allowed bad doctrine and false teaching to creep into the church and to take root in the church. And so in order to correct that problem, in order to save that church, Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to lead the church and to set things right. Now, when you think about Timothy leading the church in Ephesus, it's important to keep in mind that Timothy was not the pastor of just one congregation, not even just one really large congregation. Rather, understanding the nature of the church at that time in the Roman Empire, right, where Christianity was not a legal religion, and therefore churches were not allowed to or able to own property or build buildings or even have really large gatherings, what that meant is that the church in Ephesus wasn't just one big congregation that all met in one room under one roof once a week. Rather, the church was organized out of necessity into dozens, perhaps even hundreds of small gatherings which took place all over the city and all over that surrounding region. And so for Timothy, as the pastor and overseer of this church, his job was to make sure that all of these gatherings were, were um, operating rightly before God, both in teaching and in practice. Now, the problem in Ephesus was that at some of these gatherings, people were teaching false doctrines. Rather than teaching the straightforward message of God's word, some people were getting off into all kinds of what Paul calls speculations, perhaps in search of deeper things beyond just the simple teaching of the Bible. They're getting off into all kinds of speculations, going beyond the lines, the boundaries of the Bible. Other things they were getting into, we know that in some of these places, things were being taught that were directly contrary to the gospel. For example, people were teaching in some of these gatherings that salvation is something that you have to earn through your own good works and by being good enough. And what all of these false teachings led to, Paul told us in chapter one, what they produced in these people who embraced them was a few things. First of all, they, they produced pointless speculation, basically a, a waste of time, right? Wasting your time on stuff that really doesn't matter and is really of no true consequence. Another thing these false teachings led to was 
arrogance, an attitude of arrogance, a tendency for people to become prideful and think of themselves as superior to others. Furthermore, these teachings also led to really a self-focused and self-serving attitude rather than a heartfelt concern for others. Now, in contrast to these false teachings, Paul wanted Timothy to go there to Ephesus and bring the Ephesian Christians back to true doctrine, back to the heart of the gospel of God's grace. The gospel, of course, being the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, including you and including me. You and I, we can't save ourselves, but Jesus came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, to atone for our sins, to make us right with God so that we can have new life and life everlasting. And that doctrine, the gospel, the good news of God's grace, here's what that produces in our lives. Remember that other list I gave you uh, of things that produce in our lives? Rather than a focus on trivial matters, what the true gospel produces in our lives is a focus on things that actually matter, things that really matter. Rather than causing you to become arrogant, the true gospel, when it takes root in your heart, it causes you to become humble. It leads you to focus not on serving yourself and just living for yourself, but rather because God in Christ loved and served you and gave his life for you, really understanding the gospel, being transformed by it, causes you to have an attitude of concern and care and service to others. So now here in chapter two, Paul is going to show us how this good teaching of the true gospel should shape us as people, both as individuals and together as a church. That brings us to the second part of our sentence. Having received God's grace, we are now called. We're now called. Now, what is it that we're called to do in light of the gospel of God's grace? Paul tells us there at the second part of verse one. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So in light of the gospel of God's grace, in light of what Jesus has done for us, we are now called to be people who pray. And what kinds of prayers are we called to pray? Well, he gives us a list of four different types of prayer that we're called to pray. So each of these types of prayer has a different purpose, has a different role to play. It's, some, it's a tool that we utilize at different times for different purpose as we pray and as we're in communication with God. So the first one, supplications refers to asking God to do things. So anytime you ask God to do things, that's called a supplication. When you ask God to bless something or to bless someone, to give something or to do something, that's a supplication. Then he talks about prayers. Well, prayers, that's more like the general term for communication with God. So this would include talking to God about a situation that's in front of you, pouring out your heart, sharing your feelings, right? Telling God what's going on in your heart and mind and putting it out there for him, like we see the psalmists do many times in the Psalms. Next, Paul mentions that we should make also intercessions. Intercessions refers to asking God to do something for someone else. You're interceding on behalf of someone else. And finally, Paul mentions giving of thanks. Now, all four of these different types of prayers are important, but notice this. Who are we instructed to pray for? Who are we instructed to pray for? Paul tells us there at the end of verse one, we are to pray for all people. So try to follow Paul's logic here. In light of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done for us, it should cause us to pray. And who should we pray for? We should pray for other people. 
Now, of course, listen, there is absolutely nothing wrong with praying for yourself and for your own needs and even for your own desires. Jesus himself encouraged us on several occasions to pray for things for ourselves. In fact, Jesus even encouraged us to keep on praying for things continually until God answered our prayer. He even encourages us to pray daily for things related to our personal needs and desires. But remember, Paul is telling us what we should do in light of what Jesus has done for us. And since we have received the grace of God, which transforms our lives, which gives us hope in a future, therefore it should cause us to pray, not just for ourselves, but specifically to pray for others. The Bible tells us that to do so really is to follow in the footsteps or in the model of Jesus, who it says in the Bible that he ever lives to make intercession for us. So as the body of Jesus on earth, right, the body of Christ here on earth, we get to reflect the heart of Jesus by interceding for others in prayer. We remember how Jesus If we look at his life, he prayed for all kinds of people. For example, Jesus prayed for his disciples. He prayed that God would strengthen them, that God would sustain them, that God would bind them together in love. But Jesus didn't only pray for his disciples who already followed him. He also prayed for those who did not know him yet, those who would one day be part of his flock, but who didn't know him yet. And we also read that Jesus prayed not just for his disciples, not just for those who would be his disciples, but Jesus even prayed for his enemies and those who hurt him and rejected him. He prayed that God would have mercy on them. He prayed that God would forgive them, that God would help them to see the things that they didn't see, that God would uh, help them to come to know his love and grace for them and that they would be changed and transformed and brought to repentance. It's easy, listen, it's easy to pray for our families and our friends and our loved ones. But to pray for all people, as it says here in 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, that's a call to be like Jesus in our actions and in our prayers. It means to pray not just for your friends and your family, but even for those with whom you have conflicts, including those who annoy you, those who have hurt you. He goes on in verse 2 to say this, also for kings and for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, most likely the reason why Paul had to specify that Christians should pray for those in authority, the rulers and the kings, is because these are the people who were actively attacking and persecuting the Christians at this time. And so you can imagine that there might have been a tendency amongst Christians to not want to pray for these kinds of people, at least certainly not to pray for God's blessing on their lives. But Paul encourages these Christians to pray for these kinds of people as well. And here's why. So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, the obvious application is this. Think about right now, who is that politician who you really can't stand, the one you really, really dislike, your least favorite of all the politicians, the one who you perhaps even think is a danger to our society. This passage is telling you that because of what Jesus has done for you, you should be praying for that person. Now we're going to talk about what you should be praying for them for in just a second. But listen, early Christians were often accused of being unpatriotic, 
It was, this is how they were thought of in the Roman Empire. They were considered to be unpatriotic because they refused to swear their utmost allegiance to the state. Instead, the early Christians declared that they had a higher authority over their lives than Caesar, than the state. They're, they had a higher authority, and that higher authority was Jesus. He alone was their Lord, not Caesar and not anybody else. And yet, the early Christians were not anti-government. They supported the state by being good citizens and by praying for those who were in authority over them. You know, we have one of the prayers of an early Christian leader named Tertullian who lived during a time when the Roman government was persecuting Christians. And here's how Tertullian instructed his followers to pray for those in authority in light of this verse. Here's what he said. He said, we pray for all the emperors that God may grant them long life, a secure government, a prosperous family, vigorous troops, a faithful senate, an obedient people, that the whole world may be in peace, and that God may grant both to Caesar and to every man the accomplishment of their just desire. Now the word, that word, that phrase, that clause, if you will, there at the end, their just desires, that's really important. In other words, in all things in which the rulers and authorities were pursuing things that were for the good of the people, that were good and right, they prayed, may God grant it to happen. And yet, if those same rulers were wanting something evil and corrupt to happen, then by implication, they were praying that it would not come to pass. In Romans chapter 13, we're told that government is something that is instituted by God for our benefit. Now, obviously, governments don't always act in the best interest of their people. But the concept of government is something that is from God, and it is something which points to the hope of the gospel. Do you realize that? Government is something which works as a signpost pointing us to the hope of the gospel because the hope of the gospel is that one day the true king will come, Jesus, the son of David, and he will rule forever. And his rule will be one of perfect justice and perfect peace. And until that day comes, however... There will be no perfect government. And actually in the flaws of the earthly governments, those are things which stir up within us and point us to that longing that we have for that true and righteous government, which is to come forever. However, though, I will also say this. When a government is functioning well, it can be something that helps rather than hinders the furtherance of the gospel. And this is something that we should pray for. You see, even though the Roman government persecuted Christians, Rome also created an environment that allowed the gospel to spread throughout the world in an incredible way. They created a system of roads. They created an environment of security and peace in which the gospel was able to flourish and spread rapidly. And so we want to pray for those in authority that God would use them to create a just and fair environment which will allow opportunities for people to be blessed and for God's purposes to be accomplished, including the purpose of the spread of the gospel. So in light of the gospel, we're called to pray for all people, including those in authority. And what are we called to pray for those people? That brings us to the next, part, next verse and the final part of our sentence which is this, having received God's grace, we are now called to join God in his mission to seek and save the lost. So we're called to pray for all people, including rulers and those in authority. And what should we pray for them? Paul tells us in verse three. 
He says, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So in light of what Jesus has done for us, we should pray for all people and our prayers should be evangelistic. In other words, we should be praying for people to be saved because it tells us here, God wants people to be saved. You see, when you see an example for an example of what an evangelistic prayer looks like. For example, in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, where we see that Paul says that his heart's desire and his earnest prayer, what he prays, is for the Jewish people that they would be saved. He's praying for their salvation. So we have a biblical precedent. It's something that we are called to do. Pray for the salvation of other people. Verse 4 here in 1 Timothy 2 makes it clear that salvation, how does it come about? Well, it comes about through the knowledge of the truth. So the way we receive God's grace is by faith. Faith means trusting in, clinging to who Jesus is and what he's done for you. But in order to put your faith in Jesus, there are certain truths that you have to understand in order to believe who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. Now listen, you, you don't have to have perfect theology to get into heaven. But there is a certain knowledge of the truth which is connected to salvation. Now, listen, this truth is so simple, and yet it's also profound. It's simple enough to be understood by a child, and yet it's so profound that we can spend the rest of our lives searching out all of the, all the implications of it, all the details of it, and never exhaust ourselves. You see, this reminds us that the gospel is a message that needs to be shared, it needs to be understood, and it needs to be believed. It's a message that needs to be shared, understood, and believed. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say things like, the gospel is all about caring for those in need. Have you ever heard that one? How about this one? The gospel is love your neighbor as yourself. How about this one? The gospel is take up your cross and follow Jesus. Now listen, those are all good things. And they're all things that we're instructed to do and care about in the scriptures. But none of those things is the gospel. The gospel is a proclamation of something that has happened in history. It's a proclamation which is about something that happened which you can either believe or not believe. The gospel isn't something that you need to do. The gospel is the report of what God has done for you in order to save you and to save me. And it's as you come to understand what God has done through Jesus to save you, as you put your faith and trust in it, that's how we are saved. Now, Paul is going to tell us what the gospel is in verses 5 and 6, but I want to just camp here for a second and say this. Some people get confused by the wording here in verse 4. Just notice what it says. God, our Savior, desires for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Some people will say, well, that... That's kind of confusing, right? Because if God desires for all people to be saved, then why is it that the Bible also says that not all people will be saved? I mean, listen, if God can do anything, then why can't God just force all people to be saved and then he'll get what he desires? And yet he doesn't do that, apparently. What Jesus told us, he said, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few are those who find it. 
You see, in order to receive the salvation that is offered to us in Jesus, a person has to believe and trust in Jesus, and we're told that not everyone will. But this also presents a challenge to each of us listening to this today. The question, the challenge is this. You, you listening to this right now, the question is this. Will you receive the gift of salvation that God offers you in Jesus? Will you trust in it? Will you cling to what Jesus has done for you? Will you receive this gift that he freely offers you? No one else can do it for you. And the desire of God's heart is that you would say yes, that you would receive this grace, this gift of salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life. And that is something that you can do today, even right now. But there's this thing that the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 28 is one place. There are other places we could talk about to see the same principle. But in the book of Acts chapter 28, you know, you read about the book of Acts, missionary journeys, people hearing about Jesus, many people believing in Jesus, churches being established. But the writer tells us at the end of the book, almost as a lament, that there are so many people who heard about Jesus, what he did, what he said, all the prophecies that he fulfilled, there were so many people who heard about him, and yet they still re refused to believe and follow Jesus. And the writer says this. He says, you know what? This is what the prophet Isaiah talked about when he said that some people will hear, but they won't understand. They'll see, but they won't perceive. Now, what that's talking about is maybe something that you've experienced yourself in talking to friends, family members, coworkers. There are times when you can explain things so clearly. The gospel message, you lay it out, it's so clear, it makes so much sense. And somebody hears it or they see it and they just don't get it. They just don't get it. And no matter how clear it seems to you, they just don't see it. It's as if there's a barrier. And the Bible would say, yeah, there is a barrier. That's a real thing. You can be spiritually blind so that seeing you don't perceive. And so part of praying for people that they would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, it often includes praying for God to open people's eyes spiritually, for God to soften their hearts so that they can understand and believe. And listen, that's not something that you and I can do just merely through persuasive words, right? You can't just speak cleverly enough or clearly enough for everybody to believe. That's something that only God can do by the power of his spirit. And so it's something that we pray as we pray for people. We pray that God would do that which we can't do in people's lives, to remove those blinders, to soften those hard hearts. And yet now in verse five, Paul tells us, he says, now here's what the message of the gospel is. He says in verse five, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. In verse 5, Paul points out that there is only one God. Now, this is something that the Jewish people had always believed. But for the pagan Greeks and Romans and the other nations in the world, they believed that there were many gods. 
And what they believed was essentially like this. They would say, you know, everybody has their own idea, their own conception of who God is, but we can't really be sure, right? Like, we can't be sure. You've got your way of thinking about God. I've got my way of thinking about God. But as long as you don't try to impose your views on me, then I won't try to impose my views on you, and we can just, you know, agree to disagree, basically. And yet, Jesus came along, and Christianity came along, and they said no. There is actually one God, the creator of heaven and earth. He created all people, and therefore, all people must give account to him. And because there's one God to whom we all must give account, we all have a problem, and we all need help. Our problem is that all of us have sinned and fallen short. We haven't only fallen short of God's standards, we've even fallen short of our own standards, of even what we know and believe is right and wrong. We haven't even lived up to that, much less God's standards. We have a problem, in other words, that we cannot fix. Through our sins, we have built up a debt before God that we cannot pay. And what we need is we need a mediator. We need someone who can come in and help us. We need someone who has the means to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, to pay this debt that we've accumulated but which we cannot pay. And the good news of the gospel is that there is someone who can pay that debt and who is willing to pay that debt for you, but there's only one. There's only one person who can do that, who has the means to do it, who is willing to do it, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. He's the only one who has the ability to be the mediator, the go-between, who can make peace between us and God. Now, it's interesting here that it points out that Jesus is a man who makes peace between us and God. There are other parts of the Bible which emphasize Jesus' deity, that Jesus was actually God come to us to save us. But this verse emphasizes Jesus' humanity. It points out that Jesus was a real man who lived a real life here on earth. And the reason why Jesus is able to save us, the reason why he's able to pay the price in order to ransom us is because he is the only person who has ever lived a life that is free from sin. As a real man, Jesus faced real temptations. But unlike us, who have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, Jesus did not. He succeeded where we have failed. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of God's law on our behalf, in our place, so that he might then give his life as a ransom for all. To say that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for us means that Jesus gave his life in exchange for our freedom. It's as if you were being held hostage and Jesus said, take me instead and let him or her go free. Jesus put himself in your place to receive the judgment for your sins so that you could be set free. That's the message of the gospel. It's the message of what God has done for you to save you because he loves you. There is one mediator between God and man, but only one. Because there's no one else who has done that for you. There's no one else who could do that for you. No one else who has lived a sinless life, perfectly fulfilling all of God's requirements for you. And this is why Jesus could say, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is why Paul concludes here in verse 7 and says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. 
God had called Paul to go to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish peoples of the world, to share this message because Jesus is the Savior of the entire world. And God desires for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The word apostle means one who is sent. And God had sent Paul and commissioned him to take this message to the world. In the Old Testament, the role of the priests was to stand in the gap between God and people. They were the mediators between God and the people. They would pray for the people and they would offer sacrifices for the people to God. And what the Bible tells us is that the way those priests mediated between God and people was merely a foreshadowing of what Jesus, the true mediator between God and men, the ultimate high priest would one day do. Jesus wouldn't only offer sacrifices for people. Rather, he was God come to us in order to sacrifice himself as the perfect sacrifice for us, to ransom us from our bondage to death and save us once and for all. And now we, in response to what Jesus has done for us, we are now called, you are now called, to take that priestly role up yourself and follow in his footsteps. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle Peter tells us that when you put your faith in Jesus, not only are you saved and forgiven, but your life receives a whole new purpose and a whole new mission. No longer to only live for yourself, but you receive a new identity, a new calling to be part of what Peter calls a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood who have been called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Part of being a royal priesthood means that we who have been saved are now called to reflect the heart of Jesus by taking the position of a priest, to stand between God and people, to take our place between God and people. Our roles as members of this royal priesthood is to pray for people, that priestly role of praying for people that they might be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And also we've been commissioned sent by Jesus as his emissaries to the world to tell people the good news of what he's done. The good news that God loves them and that his, his desire is not for their destruction, but for their salvation. So I want to challenge you this week to receive the grace of God by faith, to put your hope and your trust in Jesus and what he did for you. And as you do that, I challenge you to take up that priestly role that you've been given as a follower of Jesus to take your position between God and people, to pray on behalf of people, and to speak to people on behalf of God. God is on a mission to renew all things in Christ. He's on a mission to seek and save the lost. And the cool news is that we get to be part of it. It's the most meaningful purpose, the most worthy mission in the world. And God invites you to join him in what he's doing. So may we be those who respond to that call in faith. Having received God's grace, we are now called to join God in his mission to seek and save the lost. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts 
or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.